the Jodcast, guaranteeing no sport for the next 60 to 80 minutes. With Adam Avison, John Field, Melanie Shond, Liz Guzman, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, August 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Adam Avison and in the studio with me this month is Liz and Christina. Hello. Hi. So this time in the show, we hear from Dr. Fergus Simpson about weak gravitational lensing and from Professor Carlos Frank about simulating universes full of dark matter. And we find out what you can see in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, planetary orbital alignments, spiral galaxies at high redshift, and protogalactic clouds. To stargazers on the Earth, the familiar planets all appear to follow roughly the same path across the sky as the Sun and the Moon. This is because the major planets in our solar system, including our own, orbit the Sun in the same plane. This is one aspect of Pluto's nature which distinguishes it from the larger planets. Its orbit is tilted compared to the others, making it appear to wander further around the night sky during its long orbit. The orbital plane of the planets lines up with the equator of the Sun, reflecting the way our solar system likely formed from a single rotating disk of gas some 5 billion years ago. However, many of the planetary systems discovered around other stars in recent years show no such regularity in their orbits, with exoplanets often having misaligned or retrograde orbits. But now, one planetary system has been found, which suggests that our solar system is not so unusual after all. The star, Kepler-30, is similar in mass and size to the Sun, but rotates faster and has more sunspot activity. It is these sunspots which are key to measuring the inclination of the orbits of the planets associated with it. Led by Roberto Sanchez Ojeda of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US, a team of astronomers used two and a half years of data from the Kepler spacecraft to identify a total of 44 transits of the three known planets in the Kepler-30 system. Hidden within the slight dips in brightness caused by the planets passing in front of the star, the team also found signatures of the planets passing in front of the star spots, regions of the star's outer layer which are cooler and darker than the surrounding surface. Crucially, they found that all three planets repeatedly transited across the same star spot. For this to happen, the orbits of the three planets must be very closely aligned with the equator of the star, and with each other, implying that Kepler-30's planetary system lies in an equatorial plane just like our own, and that the system originated in a spinning disk of gas. The results have implications for our understanding of the formation of planetary systems. The many known so-called hot Jupiters, large gas giants orbiting close to their parent stars, are often in highly tilted orbits. It is thought that the irregular nature of these systems may be due either to a misalignment of the star and the disk from which the planets formed in the first place, or from dynamical interactions which perturb their orbits after the planet's formation. According to the authors of this study, published in Nature on the 26th of July, the second hypothesis is more likely, implicating dynamical interactions in the creation of hot Jupiter systems. In the local universe, spiral galaxies are fairly common. Some of the most well-known and often photographed galaxies are grand design spirals, those with well-defined bright spiral arm structures, the Whirlpool Galaxy, or M51, being one famous example. While such spectacular galaxies are common today, the further out in space we look, and the further back in the history of the universe we observe, the fewer spiral structures we see. Up to now, only one such spiral has been identified, at a redshift greater than two, corresponding to looking back in time some 10.7 billion years. Now, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope to survey 300 galaxies in the early universe have found a second example of such a grand design spiral galaxy, which existed just 3 billion years after the Big Bang. Led by David Law of the University of Toronto in Canada, the team surveyed a large number of distant galaxies with Hubble. 
They then carried out further detailed observations with a number of instruments at the Keck Observatory on Hawaii, and found evidence that one galaxy in their sample has a rotating disk with prominent spiral arms. By using spectroscopy to measure the motion of gas in the galaxy, they found that the structure is an actual spiral disk, rather than two galaxies aligned to give the appearance of spiral structure. Most galaxies at this epoch look clumpy and irregular, so this new find, labelled BX442, is very unusual. Out of a sample of more than 300 galaxies at a similar redshift, BX442 is the only one to show any signs of spiral structure, despite 27 galaxies in their sample having similar masses, and 10 of those closely matching other properties of BX442. There could be more than one reason for this lack of spirals at high redshift. It is thought that galaxies at this early point in the universe would have been too hot and turbulent for stable spiral arm structures to form, but it could also be that such structures are extremely short-lived, the mechanism which triggers the formation of such structures is extremely rare, or that today's telescopes are simply not sensitive enough to detect such structures at these large distances. The success of these observations depended on the large size of the Keck telescope, and the use of a laser adaptive optic system to correct for distortions caused by the Earth's atmosphere in order to see the galaxy in detail at such a large distance. The researchers found that, in common with many grand design spirals we see in the local universe, the images of BX442 show that it is in the process of merging with another, smaller system. Since galaxies in the early universe are thought to be too turbulent for spiral arms to form, it could be the gravitational kick from this interaction which caused the spiral structure to form. Publishing their results in Nature on the 19th of July, the researchers argued that the estimated lifetime of a merger-induced spiral structure in a massive galaxy with a hot, thick disk is consistent with their observed rarity. The estimated lifetime of such structure in galaxies like BX442 is less than 100 million years, less than half the time taken for the galaxy to rotate once. So, for observers on Earth to see a spiral structure at this redshift, not only do we have to have a massive galaxy with a large extended disk, it also has to have a suitable companion to trigger the formation of the spiral structure, it has to be almost face onto our line of sight so that we can see it, and we have to observe it during the small time window when the structure is prominent. And finally, going even further back in cosmic history, a study published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society during July describes the first direct detection of dark galaxies, small, gas-rich galaxies with few or no stars, but are thought to be the building blocks of the much larger galaxies we see in the universe today. The trouble is, as the name suggests, since they have very few stars, they don't emit much light, making them incredibly difficult to detect. Led by Sebastiano Cantalupo at the University of California in the US, a team of astronomers have detected some of these mysterious objects for the first time. Such low-luminosity galaxies are predicted to exist by models of galaxy formation in the early universe, but, while hints of such dark galaxies have been seen before, this is the first time that they have been directly detected. Like a white t-shirt glowing in the light of an ultraviolet lamp, these galaxies do not emit light of their own, but reflect ultraviolet light emitted by a nearby bright object such as a quasar, a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy. Using the large collecting area and sensitive detectors of the European Very Large Telescope in Chile, together with a custom-built filter, the team mapped a region of sky around a particularly bright quasar, looking for the faint fluorescent glow of hydrogen in dark and otherwise invisible gas-rich galaxies. Using this technique, the team discovered almost 100 gaseous objects in the region of this quasar, known as HE0109-3518. The astronomers found evidence that 12 of them are dark galaxies with extremely low rates of star formation, exactly the sort of primordial galaxy predicted to exist in the early universe. From their observations, the team were able to calculate the properties of such galaxies. 
they have typical masses of around 1 billion times that of the Sun, some 100 times less massive than our own Milky Way galaxy, and have star formation rates 200 times lower than typical star-forming massive galaxies found at the same time in the history of the universe. Galaxies such as these may be the source of the gas reservoirs from which the galaxies we see today formed their stars, and these results will help refine models of the history of galaxy formation in the early universe. OK, so we're still drawing on our store of interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, so there will be some background noise. And we have Melanie talking to Dr Fergus Simpson about measuring the distribution of dark matter in the universe using a technique known as weak gravitational lensing. Hi, this is Melanie, and I'm with uh, Dr. Fergus Simpson from the uh, Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. Hi. Hi there. So there was a big press release in uh, January on the BBC about something you work on, the CFHT lens survey, about wig lensing and mapping dark matter, and it sounds really mysterious to me. Can you tell me more about it? Uh, Sure. Well, what's happened is the the CFHT lens survey... uh, has mapped quite a large area of the sky. We've spent five years staring at this patch of the sky and measuring the, the, the shapes of distant galaxies. And what the shapes of distant galaxies tell us is, uh, is about how uh, dark matter is distributed in the universe because the dark matter has been uh, distorting uh, the image as it, as it traveled over billions of years to the Earth. And so these distortions allow us to pin down where the dark matter is located. How is the light distorted? Like, how does that work? Uh, so it's bent by gravity in the same way that the same sort of forces that are holding the Earth, the Sun, and the moons of the Earth. And light also feels this effect, although we don't really notice it on an everyday basis, um, because most of the light we deal with doesn't travel for very long periods of time, so it doesn't have time to fall to the ground, for example. It's the, related to uh, the uh, relativity, ancient relativity, and the, the right. bending of space-time. Exactly. So like that. we use the predictions of uh, Einstein's theory of relativity to to predict how much light gets bent as as it travels for billions of years through the universe. Is it a lot of bending, or how how do you detect this? It's a, it's actually quite small effect because the universe is actually fairly smooth. Uh, so typically, the galaxy looks roughly speaking, it looks quite elliptical, and and it's it's distorted by around about one percent by this distortion. So you can't for any single galaxy, you can't really tell what's going on. But we look at very large numbers of galaxies, and then they appear to line up on the sky due to this distortion. So. That's the technique we use to to try and locate the, the dark matter. So it's like if all galaxies in a certain area will be kind of lining up in one direction, you kind of know that exactly. it's distorted in that direction. Exactly, yeah. So you say like a large number of galaxies, like what kind of area of the sky are you covering? Uh, it's several hundred times the area of, of the full moon. Uh, so it's sort oh. of about the size of your outstretched hand on the sky. So it's a much larger area than we've mapped previously. So it's the first time we've got a very clear picture of the of the large-scale structure of, of dark matter in the universe. And how far back in time, how, how distant uh, are you looking? Is it just local sky or...? So the galaxies we're looking at are from several billion years back, we're looking. And so the distortion accumulates over that time. So, so the dark, all the dark matter between the galaxy and ourselves is, is what we're measuring. That's pretty cool. You're looking at light coming from galaxy and the way they line up with each other just tells you the shape of what you can't see. Exactly, yeah. It's a unique way to, to map the dark matter. Uh, there are other ways of learning about the universe. We can look at the positions of galaxies, and that does tell us a great deal. But the, using this lensing technique uh, is, is the most direct way to get at the position of dark matter. What are the other techniques out there? So galaxies aren't randomly distributed in the universe, they, they clump together. And so we can learn from the way they're f- falling in towards each other uh, something about gravity. 
um, but we, we can never really directly see the dark matter because it doesn't interact with light. Yeah. So what did you find with your, uh, your big survey in terms of the dark matter? Well, yeah, intriguingly, the dark matter maps that were created from this data um, matches up very nicely with uh, the predictions from when we simulate the universe in a, in a computer and, and we look at what we expect to see. Then the, the sort of filamentary structure you may have seen on the BBC matches up very nicely with the simulations predictions. And before this uh, CFHT lens survey, there was no data. It was only simulation and... There was a very limited amount of data, so less is perhaps the area of the full moon on the sky, and, and so a very small patch, so we couldn't be too sure of how well it was behaving. We couldn't see the full filamentary structure, but now we have many hundreds of, hundreds of times larger area, so uh, we have a much better idea of what's going on. Nice. And what's next? Uh, good question. There's a lot of surveys in the, in the pipeline. A particularly ambitious one is called Euclid and involves covering half of the entire sky from a space-based telescope. So we're going to be able to look deeper and with higher resolution to get a uh, finer detail of, of what's going on. So is it just like a project or is it actually going to happen? Well, the, the Euclid uh, was selected by the European Space Agency as one of its uh, missions and it's due to launch in 2019. Uh, so all going well, then in another decade or so we should have a, a vastly improved picture of, of, of dark matter and, and it's a project that covers uh, half the sky to great depth. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, it is, yeah. We're also uh, using the data not just to map out the, the distribution of dark matter, but we're also uh, using the weak lensing information to tell us about the other major component of the universe, uh, dark energy, which is causing the universe to accelerate outwards. So, so lensing is basically the tool to understand dark. Right. It doesn't discriminate, about, so it can equally see dark matter and dark energy and, and baryons. So uh, it's, it's a very useful tool to directly probe the dark universe, yes. So how do you use that to probe dark energy? What is dark energy exactly? What do we know? We're, not, we're not really sure, to be honest, but that's why, that's why we're conducting these experiments. But we do know that the expansion of the universe appears to be accelerating, and w what is driving that we call dark energy. And so the, the change in the expansion rates uh, alters the lensing signal in the same way that the strength of a magnifying glass changes as you pull it uh, towards you and away from you, the change the distances involved. So hopefully we'll learn more about dark energy in the future too. So I guess for that you need a lot of wide area and very deep data to really map. That's right. We're, we've already made progress with, with safe HT lens and we, we'll be presenting results on dark energy in the future very shortly. Very exciting. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. I hope you enjoyed the conference. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Melanie. In our second interview, Mark asked Professor Carlos Frank what simulations of the universe can tell us about the nature of dark matter. Our final plenary talk has just happened and I've caught up with a speaker which is Professor Carlos Frank of the University of Durham and he's been talking about uh, simulations of the, the large-scale universe and in particular looking at the models of cold dark matter and warm dark matter. First of all, do you think you could just explain about what the standard cosmological model is? is? Well, we have uh, one of the great success stories of astronomy of the last 30 years has been the development of what has now become the standard model of cosmology called the Lambda CDM model, where Lambda stands for Einstein's cosmological constant, no less, okay. and CDM stands for cold dark matter. So in this um, standard model of cosmology, the universe or the gravity in the universe is overwhelmingly produced by exotic particles called cold dark matter particles that are 
very different from the particles that make uh, normal atoms, of the particles that we and stars and planets are made of. These are very different. Uh, they are probably uh, produced very early on in the history of the universe, and they are elementary particles that go the wrong way and produce the gravity in the universe. So that's the cold dark matter. The lambda stands for cosmological constant, or more generally for dark energy, and that uh, is a component that um, of the universe that actually makes up the lion's share of the universe. Cold dark matter is probably only about 20% or so. This uh, cosmological constant of dark energy is about 70%. And ordinary matter, the one that we know and love, makes only about 5% of what the universe contains. So this uh, dark energy is responsible for the overall behavior of the universe, and in particular for the fact that our universe seems to be expanding at an ever-accelerating rate. Uh, that is a, almost certainly a consequence of the dark energy which is pushing our universe, opposing the force of gravity that would of course try to make our universe slow down. Um, the dark energy makes it expand faster and faster and faster, uh, and that, that's what it does. So that those are the three key ingredients of um, this model of cosmology, dark energy, dark matter, and a sprinkling of ordinary matter. Uh, there is, however, another important part of the model, and that is the initial conditions for the formation of galaxies uh, and other structures. All too good to know uh, very well. We know what the universe is made of, but why are there galaxies in the universe? Why isn't the universe just a completely amorphous soup of dark matter uh, in an accelerating universe with a sprinkling of atoms and so on? But the reason for that, we believe, in the standard model, very soon after the universe came into existence, about a um, tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, the universe underwent a fairly traumatic but very short-lived period where small cracks appeared, what physicists call quantum fluctuations of the vacuum. These are just fluctuations that appear uh, driven by subatomic quantum phenomena. The point is that these fluctuations cause small irregularities or cracks in the early universe to appear, and the amazing proposition in the standard model of cosmology is that these small quantum fluctuations are amplified by the gravity of the dark matter, eventually giving rise to the amazing galaxies that we see in the universe today. So it's an amazing story, one that um, if Newton walked through the door, uh, he'll probably cause Newton to become apoplectic, <laughs> if not to have a heart attack. He'll say, even Einstein probably wouldn't like this very much, because uh, they would say, what? Are you trying to tell me that galaxies like the Milky Way with a billion stars started life as a quantum fluctuation of the vacuum, <laughs> amplified by some dark matter that uh, we don't even know it exists? You must be out of your mind. The key thing, though, and the reason that distinguishes this model and makes it science and not fantasy, is that like every good part of physics, it makes predictions that are testable. All right, so you can come up in physics with any crazy idea you want, so long as you can test it and in principle rule it out, then you're doing physics. Uh, if it's not testable, then you're doing something else, but not physics. And this lambda CDM model is testable, and it has been tested in great rigor and uh, with very elegant experiments. Yeah, one of the things you were talking about was how successful it had been in predicting things, and some of the results were really were quite stunning. I mean, you explained how... There was a theoretical prediction of what the cosmic microwave background sort of looks like or the scale of its structure. And then that came well before 
the actual measurement, but the measurement agreed incredibly well. Yes, now that, that is really astonishing. So we know the Big Bang, we call it the hot Big Bang because uh, it was hot uh, at uh, early times. And this radiation, the early heat of the Big Bang, uh, has been propagating throughout the 13.7 billion years that our universe has been around. And um, it's still around today, but now it's so cold because uh, it's expanded so much that uh, this uh, heat appears now in the form of microwaves. Now, these microwaves were discovered in 1966, one of the pinnacles, highlights of physics of the 20th century. And 40 years later, it was um, studied in enough detail for physicists to realize that um, there was an imprint in this heat left over from the Big Bang of those very same quantum fluctuations that Lambda CDM predicts. And uh, this, uh, th th this imprint shows up uh, small differences in the temperature of this radiation from one place to another. Very, very tiny differences. Remember, these are quantum fluctuations. Quantum are small things. So these are tiny little differences. So for the one part in a 100,000 in this temperature uh, of the radiation, it was measured uh, in 1993 by the COBE satellite. Again, another important milestone in cosmology because it gave us direct evidence that this idea that uh, structure in the universe was seeded by this exotic um, subatomic phenomena occurring close to the Big Bang was not only not completely crazy and wild, but actually agreed with the evidence from this um, microwave background. So it was like the, the, the patchiness, essentially, of the, of the radiation. The patchiness, yes. The, the radiation that comes to us from the Big Bang is not completely uniform. Its temperature is not the same everywhere. It's slightly different uh, from one place to another. It's patchy and um, I think many people will have seen these maps of that temperature when the first map was produced um, in um, 1993, which, by the way, warned the Nobel Prize in Physics to the person who made this map, called George Smoot. He, he uh, <laughs> referred to this pattern as almost like looking at the face of God, mm. because imprinted in the little patches was the whole beginning of the universe. So... Yes, so that, that, um, uh, what is really remarkable is that, uh, with subsequent, uh, satellites, COVID discovered them, but, uh, these patches, but then they were measured with great accuracy 10 years later by the WMAP satellite. The amazing thing is that the details of these patches were actually predicted using the standard model of cosmology in the 1980s. And, uh, so that, I think, to me, is one of the most remarkable uh, successes of physics, not just cosmology ever. The fact that physicists working with this a priori crazy model made a prediction for the detailed structure of these uh, hot and cold spots in the microwave background radiation. Ten years later, they were measured, and it was exactly as the theories had predicted. And the predictions are not trivial. The details that um, can be measured are exactly what the doctor ordered, exactly what the theory predicts. So it is wonderful to see in astrophysics and in cosmology that uh, we can actually test these um, very fundamental ideas about the beginning of our universe and its evolution. So it seemed like a happy ending for that particular model, but you were explaining in your talk that in fact the, the all is not entirely well <laughs> with the theory of cold dark matter. Well, yes. I mean, the theory of cold dark matter is a very general theory. And um, 
it um, accounts for not only the microwave background radiation, but also for why galaxies look the way they do. Uh, it can tell us in a very compelling way why some galaxies are swirling disks of gas and stars, whereas others are uh, elliptical galaxies. It tells us uh, why galaxies are distributed in space the way they are. So it, it has many, many uh, feathers to its cap. However, when we examine some of the more detailed predictions of this theory, now on scales of very small galaxies, what are called dwarf galaxies, and in particular satellites orbiting around the Milky Way, then something seems to be perhaps not quite right with the theory. In the following sense, though, the successes of the theory are there and are not going to go away. The question then is whether the assumption that the dark matter is cold is actually correct in detail, or whether it's a different kind of particle, what physicists call warm dark matter. What does temperature or coldness uh, and warmth well, actually mean for dark matter? Yes, physicists loosely refer to uh, these different types of particles by a temperature, cold and warm. All they're talking about, physicists in this context, is the fact that um, when these particles were produced in the very early universe, they were not at rest, they were moving. Uh, cold particles are very sluggish particles that move very, very slowly, uh, hence the name cold. Hot dark matter would be particles that are that move very, very fast, uh, and um, warm dark matter that intermediate, uh, move at intermediate velocity. So the names cold, warm, hot really refer to the size of these primordial velocities that these particles had when they were formed. Now, it turns out that uh, uh, the universe might have made cold particles, sluggish, very heavy particles, or it might have made particles that moved a little bit more, in which case they would be warm. And uh, the two are very similar from the point of view of cosmology, very different from the point of view of particle physicists, particularly of particle physicists trying to discover these particles or detect them. It makes a huge difference whether it's a cold particle or a warm particle because they interact in different ways with detectors and so on. However, from the point of view of cosmology, the differences are, are really relatively minor and manifest themselves only when you look in detail at the structure of these dwarf galaxies. There, you expect to see differences. But on larger scales, uh, it, it doesn't make any difference if it's cold or warm. It's just that until now, we've all focused on cold because it was the simplest hypothesis to try. And now it seems to be this hypothesis perhaps breaking down on the scales of dwarfs, although not completely broken, by the way. There are ways out, but there seem to be problems that could be maybe a sign that actually the particle is not really a cold particle. It's actually a warm particle. But this is a difference of detail. The success of the standard model remains regardless of this detail of whether the particles are cold or warm. Mm. So it's a very important detail for physicists, but for cosmologists, it's just a detail. I think the success of the microwave background radiation, the success in understanding the evolution, uh, formation, evolution of galaxies and the spatial distribution, they are there no matter whether the dark matter is cold or warm. Mm. But if you're trying to find one of these, then it is very important that you know, because you would make a completely different experiment. For example, if the dark matter is a cold particle, then, in principle, the Large Hadron Collider, the big particle accelerator in Geneva, should be able to make particles in the laboratory, make dark matter in the laboratory, if it is a cold particle. Uh, and that is because, um, as uh, the publicity advertised, the Large Hadron Collider will recreate the conditions that prevailed in the universe when it was a millionth of a second old. Mm. And this is exactly the time 
when the cold particles would have been manufactured in the real universe. So if the Large Hadron Collider can copy the Big Bang, particularly if it can recreate the conditions a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, it should be able to make the same thing as the Big Bang made, namely cold dark matter. However, if the dark matter is not cold, but warm, then there's no hope. The LHC won't be able to recreate the conditions required for making warm dark matter. So, if in the next two years we haven't woken up to the Today program telling us that the Large Hadron Collider has made dark matter, then I think we should uh, begin to take even more seriously the possibility that it is a different kind of particle, possibly a warm dark matter particle. From the, from the point of view of the success of cosmology, say it's a detail. From the point of view of experimental physics, it's a fundamentally different proposition. Okay. And, and you've been involved in quite a number of simulations, starting with the conditions of dark matter and then showing how the universe should develop. It seems amazing to try and simulate the universe in, in a computer, but I, get, I gather that's where you get some of the predictions from that you're able to then test against observations. Oh, yes, no, it, it is pretty amazing. And my job description says, uh, Professor Frank, Institute of Computational Cosmology, Durham University, uh, your job is to make universes to order. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's my job description. Uh, and indeed, one, again, another of the remarkable achievements of uh, physicists of the last 20 years has been the ability to make virtual universes in a computer. So what we do, in principle simple, in practice a bit more complicated, but in principle is disarmingly simple. So here's what we do. We know about the initial conditions, yeah, these quantum fluctuations I was talking about before. And then we make a hypothesis for the dark matter, cold dark matter, warm dark matter, hot dark matter, whatever. And there's the second part. Third, we know the laws of physics. And we assume that the laws of physics that we know about here on Earth, like Newton's law of gravity, or the Boyle's law of gases, and so on, the ordinary laws of physics, apply not only here on Earth, but everywhere and at every time. So we program the computer with the equations that describe the laws of physics. We prime it with the initial conditions uh, with quantum fluctuations. We make a hypothesis about the nature of the dark matter, and we let the computer solve the equations. Away uh, goes the computer. You need a big computer for this, I should add. You need a supercomputer. Off it goes, comes back a few weeks or a few months later, and it's produced a virtual universe. In other words, it's all the equations of physics telling us what a universe would look like if our hypotheses were correct. So in principle, that's what the real universe will have done. I mean, the real universe has solved the equations of physics yes. in a manner of speaking, and that's what we do in computers. So the degree of realism with which we can now simulate the universe is really pretty awesome. We are able now in computers to make galaxies that look almost indistinguishable from the Milky Way. Wow. We can make stars. We haven't yet cracked fully, although there are advances here, uh, uh, the problem of making planets, but I think that's just around the corner. And then once we've been able to make galaxies, stars, and planets, why stop there? I like to simulate a human. I like to simulate the origin of life. And eventually, if I live long enough, uh, I like to simulate the origin of consciousness. Oh. Why not? If a computer can do a galaxy, why not do human consciousness? Well, you need a, a computer the size of the universe to simulate the universe, though, in the end. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the computers, of course, 
are approximations to the real thing. And uh, what limits the power of a computer is the complexity of the problem. It, if it turns out that, uh, say, life is a lot more complex than we expect, then it will be very difficult to simulate the arrangement of life. But we should be optimistic and hope that at least the biochemical processes that gave rise to life should be amenable to computer simulation. I'm not so sure about consciousness. And uh, in a way, it's scary to think that you can simulate consciousness, because if you can, mm. what guarantee is there that there isn't somebody else somewhere else in the universe who's already cracked the problem, and uh, we are nothing other than uh, a computer simulation. Yeah. So I'd rather not think about that. That sort of stops being a simulation, doesn't it, once you've got a consciousness in the computer? Yeah. But, um, well, coming back to the, the, the predictions for, for galaxies, you were talking about how to distinguish between cold and warm dark matter based on the amount of substructure in galaxies, oh, yes. so the, the sort of clumpiness of, of matter within galaxies. And is that something that, that will be able to be tested with telescopes to try and solve Astronomically. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it's a sort of a slightly paradoxical, but these dwarf galaxies, which most people kind of turn cold shoulder and uh, t- turn their backs to or uh, turn their noses up at these small galaxies, because they're very small, you know, you can hardly see them. Astronomers weren't really interested in them because they're so hard to observe. Yet, it may be paradoxically that these little dwarf galaxies have the key to the great mystery of the identity of the dark matter. And the reason is that um, cold dark matter, warm dark matter uh, make identical predictions on the scales of galaxies, galaxy clusters, microwave background radiation, but they make subtly different predictions on the scales of these dwarf galaxies. Uh, For example, in the case of warm dark matter, we expect far fewer dwarf galaxies than in the case of of cold dark matter. Moreover, we expect the dark matter clumps in which these dwarf galaxies live to be slightly different from the case of cold dark matter. And the interesting thing is that uh, the theory, again, makes very definitive predictions, which are in principle testable with observations that can be carried out already with the biggest telescopes we have, and it would become routine with the next generation of telescopes. So the big telescopes that are now in the pipeline, like the European uh, Extremely Large Telescope, for instance, um, which we hope will be built in the next 20 years or so, they will make it routine to measure the properties that need to be measured for the stars in dwarf galaxies to unlock the mystery of the dark matter. So it is there. So the mystery is there. Uh, We have the key. It's in the dwarf galaxies. We just need to be able to put the key in the lock. Uh, And that uh, operation will require a next generation of large telescopes. But it's there. The answer is just there waiting for us to tap it. Fascinating. (laughs) Well, the last thing I thought I might ask you about was um, was I went to a session on on these simulations. And um, there were a lot of different ways that people had used to simulate how particles affect each other by gravity. And I thought, well, there's one physics, and yet people come up with many different ways to approximate the physics in the computer. So so how does it come that, that just the one thing results in so many different algorithms for computing here? Okay, so, so if you have the same law of physics, then that law is expressed in terms of an equation, a mathematical equation. Now, some of these equations are very complicated because... Um, they're not simple algebraic equations that were mathematicians called partial differential equations, nonlinear partial differential equations. Sounds very fancy, and it is very fancy. So solving these equations in a computer is very hard. And 
it could take a long, long time in a computer. If you don't design an effective and efficient algorithm, it would take you a long time to solve these equations. So the debate there is uh, what is the most accurate, efficient, and clear, simple way of solving these differential equations that uh, describe the laws of physics, which in turn describe, we think, nature. So that's what the debate is. It's a very uh, fascinating sub-area of applied mathematics called numerical mathematics, where one tries to solve these equations using a computer. They cannot be solved in the traditional analytical way mm. uh, because the equations are too complex. But uh, that's why you were at a session with people... Um, Possibly I wasn't at that session, but I've been in sessions like that, bragging as to who has the best way to solve these <laughs> equations. And it is important because to be able to do a realistic simulation, of course, one needs to be able to solve the equations as accurately and as efficiently as possible. As it is, we already use, for the simulations I was talking about today, one of the largest supercomputers in Europe. And we have to monopolize that supercomputer for months at a time to the uh, extreme annoyance of chemists and other <laughs> physicists who also want to use the computer. Mm. Luckily, we are doing a very appealing and uh, uh, sexy problem, which is <laughs> the structure of the universe. But so, so having efficient algorithms is absolutely vital. And actually, and that's the reason why, uh, co combined with the power and um, amazing technological developments in computer technology, that, that the subject has taken off the way it has. It's not just the technology, it's not just quicker uh, computers, more computers, cheaper computers, but it's also the mathematics behind it that has made this explosion possible. So is that why you want to simulate a consciousness? Because maybe that, that will then create the best algorithm for doing a dark math that's simulation. Right. You could get a computer, that's right, to program itself. <laughs> we, we already do that at some, at some, at some level. Yeah. We already get the computers to design the algorithms to solve higher level, more complicated problems. So we already see how that can happen. So my great fear is that um, we will one day make a computer so powerful that it will be able to unlock the mysteries of the universe. And my fear is that I'll go to the computer and I will say to the computer, well, tell me, please, what is the answer? And the computer will talk to me and say, look, you asked me to solve the problem, I've solved it, but I can't explain it to you. You're not smart enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is my biggest fear. <laughs> All right, well, I think we'd better let you go and catch your train. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the bits we couldn't find space to fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So I wanted to talk to you about a new planet that was found by Spitzer. Spitzer doesn't know, it's not normally looking at exoplanets, but they were observing an exoplanet and they found another exoplanet in the same stellar system. The important thing of this one is the smallest one found ever so far and is two-thirds of the size of the earth and it is 33 light years away from us so this is making it possibly the nearest world to our solar system that is smaller than our home planet it was found by transit the same as kepler so when the planet goes in front of the star it was found unexpectedly they actually review data from the archive, from Spitzer archive, and they showed some dips in the uh, that the dips were periodic, and and this was suggesting that there was a second planet. So they went back and redo everything, and they found it. So the planet is called UCF 1.01. It has a diameter of 5,200 miles, and is so close to the star that its year lasts only 1.4 Earth days. Short year. <laughs> exactly, really short, right? 
this was very interesting and very important. And so now you're just telling us that Spitzer might be able to discover more exoplanets as small as Mars. That's very cool. And it's cool that they're finding it in like the archive data. It's, you know, there's, there's extra information and stuff that's just sitting in, in computers waiting to be looked at. So that's a really yeah, cool Yeah, exactly. There's so much cool data thing. that people need to just go back and then analyze it. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we haven't found yet. Now from a planet that's smaller than Mars to Mars itself, Media City in Salford has been chosen to host a public screening of the landing of Curiosity, the Mars rover, on Monday, August the 6th at 5.30am. It's really, really exciting that they've chosen it. It's a good thing for us here. Um, There's going to be NASA personnel there and there's going to be a school visit involved as well, which is just really cool. That's all. And yeah, it's open to the public so you can just go along as far as I'm aware. But what time does it start? 5.30am. Okay. So pretty early. You'll have to get up really early, or, or you can stay all night. <laughs> yeah, stay up, stay up late, all yeah. night. Yeah, and I'll post some links to the website about it, and um, links to the rover information as well. Moving from Mars to slightly closer to home in the orbit of the Earth, the US government organisation, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, are starting a project which they hope to... Uh, create the technology to launch a satellite with some smaller satellites to harvest components from dead or zombie satellites that are already in orbit around the Earth to use these these components that aren't defunct to build new satellites in orbit. So you take what's dead and you take some bits off it and you build a new functioning satellite. So the article I was reading went for uh, Franken satellites, which I think is quite a cool term. Um, <laughs> NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab have, have won a share of this money and they're going to be developing the technology over the few years. The idea of it is that um, some smaller satellites go to the defunct satellites in orbit, pick off a particular component and then move away and get picked up by a larger satellite which is then sort of the uh, the building platform for, for building these new ones, which sounds both really cool, really science fiction-y, and slightly terrifying. Um, I assume that the, 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 the building will be uh, remote-controlled from Earth rather than robots building robots, because that's where the bog starts. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this thing is literally just going to be putting it together in space there's going to be no bringing it back to earth refitting. no i think everything to do is to be done in orbit i mean it's expensive to go into space once so going it several times is, is quite an expensive thing so i think if they can do everything in orbit it saves a load of money and and that's one of the key things because the, the main thing that this is going to be working with is commercial satellites like telecommunications yeah so that sounds really cool so long as it doesn't go yeah skynet on us um <laughs> So, from uh, Night of the Living Dead Satellites to Night of the Lively Observing, here's what you can see in the northern night sky with Ian Morrison. The night sky in August. At least we don't have to wait up quite so late to see it. And what I will describe is the night sky at about 10pm. Right over and setting in the west is the bright star Arcturus, in Bootes, the herdsman. Coming over towards the south, we come past Corona Borealis, a little circlet of stars, through Hercules, which has, of course, that lovely globular cluster M13 on the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone. And then, high overhead, we come to a very bright star called Vega, in the very small constellation of Lyra the Lyre. Vega in Lyra 
It's one of the three stars that makes up the summer triangle. I'll say more about that in the highlights of the month. But that is along with Deneb in Cygnus the Swan, also high overhead. And below there, you have Altair in Aquila the Eagle, a lovely part of the night sky with the Milky Way arcing all the way through. Rising over in the east, we now have the square of Pegasus, the winged horse, but upside down. One way of telling how dark the night sky is, and also partly how good your eyes are, is to count the number of stars you can actually see in the square of Pegasus. Typically, I can see four, but my son, who's much younger, can see something like eight or nine. It's worth a try. Carrying on along the Milky Way from Deneb, we come to that rather nice constellation of Cassiopeia, and then dropping down towards the horizon is Perseus. In between Cassiopeia and Perseus, it's a very rich part of the Milky Way, including a lovely pair of open clusters, which are called the double cluster. Well worth looking out for. You can see it as a little hazy blob in a dark sky, but easily seen in binoculars. Well, what about the planets this month? Not bad, actually. Let's start with Jupiter. It's now visible in the pre-dawn sky, rising about 2am PST as August begins and a couple of hours earlier by month's end. So it can be well seen at an elevation of more than 16 degrees before sunrise. Shining at magnitude minus 2.2, it starts August lying just 5 degrees above the star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. It gradually leaves that area, the Hyades cluster, moving towards the horns of Taurus, and its magnitude increases to minus 3.3. At the same time, of course, as it's getting nearer, its angular diameter increases from 36 to 39 arc seconds. So even a small telescope will show plenty of detail, such as the equatorial bands and zones crossing the disk. You should also see up to four of the Galilean moons. Obviously, sometimes one is in front or behind, but usually we see at least three. Well, moving on to Saturn. Now, Saturn and Mars are both ending their current apparitions, and hence seen low in the west after sunset. Saturn is shining at magnitude about plus 0.8, lying in Virgo, and it starts the month just 4.5 degrees north of the first magnitude star Spica, or Alpha Virginis, in the constellation of Virgo. It's moving slowly eastwards to end the month just a little bit further away. It has a disk, 16.5 arc seconds across, and the rings are now at 14 degrees to the line of sight. So we get quite a good view, in fact, of the northern part, the northern side of Saturn. Its rings span about 37 arc seconds, so it can be well seen. And also, you should be able to pick up its largest satellite, Titan. It lies south of Saturn on August the 8th, north on the 16th, and south again on the 24th. Well, what about Mercury? It reaches its greatest western elongation on August the 16th, and then it has an angular distance from the Sun of 19 degrees. However, the plane of the ecliptic in the morning is at a shallow angle to the horizon, so it'll only be about 10 degrees above the horizon 30 minutes before sunrise. You probably need to use binoculars to see it, but obviously be careful when the sun rises. 
brightens quickly during the month and reaches magnitude minus 0.1 on the 16th. Mercury continues to brighten throughout the month, finishing at minus 1, but it actually is dropping back down to the horizon, so harder to see. Well, Mars, again very close to Saturn, moving eastwards through Virgo, well past its best an angular diameter of just about five arc seconds, so you won't really see any details on its salmon pink disc. On the 1st of August, its elevation is only about six degrees as darkness falls, and that gets less as the month progresses. So to see it and Saturn, you need a good low western horizon. Finally, Venus. Well, Venus has reappeared into the pre-dawn sky, and it reaches its greatest western elongation from the Sun on the 15th of August. Venus then rises some three hours before the Sun and dominates the pre-dawn sky. It shows a crescent phase, as we shall see in the highlights later, and moving eastwards, it starts the month close to the tip of one of the horns of Taurus the Bull, then crosses past Orion's Club and enters Gemini on the 13th. Its angular size is dropping from 28 to 20 arc seconds, but at the same time the illumination increases from 42 to 58%, so the brightness doesn't change that much, just from about minus 4.6 to minus 4.4 magnitudes. So quite a good month to observe the planets. Finally, let's have a look at the highlights this month. Well, a classic thing we can observe in August is a Perseid meteor shower that's visible anywhere from about the 11th to the 14th of the month, but at its best on the morning of the 13th. This year, happily, the moon is not far from new moon, so it's not going to hinder our view. You need to look up towards the northeast from about 11 p.m. onwards on the nights of the 11th, 12th, 13th and 14th. The peak of activity, which is when you might expect to see some 20 to 30 meteors an hour, is predicted between about 0030 just after midnight, and three o'clock British summer time on the morning of the 13th. Most meteors tend to be seen looking about 15 degrees away from the radiant, which, as you might expect, is in that constellation Perseus I mentioned earlier. And the radiant lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia, in fact, very close to that double cluster. The Perseid meteors are particles, usually smaller than a grain of sand, which are released as the comet Swift-Tuttle passes the sun. The shower is actually quite long-lived. It's worth having a look at any clear night from about the 10th to the 15th of August. So, good hunting. I mentioned the Summer Triangle. It is a very nice region. About 10 o'clock, you'll see Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila well up in the southeast and rising almost to above our heads. The three brightest stars, as I mentioned, Deneb, Vega and Altair, make up that Summer Triangle. A nice thing to do is to sweep with binoculars on a dark night about one third of the way from Altair towards Vega. As you sweep upwards, you actually cross over a fairly dark part, it's called the Cygnus Rift, where the dust clouds hide the light from the Milky Way. But there you should spot what's called Brocky's Cluster, or more commonly, the Coat Hanger. That is exactly what it looks like, an upside down Coat Hanger. Not far to the upper left of Brocky's cluster is perhaps the most beautiful double star to observe in a small telescope. It's the star Albireo. It forms the head of Cygnus the Swan. At magnitude 3, it's the least brightest of the stars that make up 
part of Cygnus, which is actually called the Northern Cross. It's the bottom tip of the cross. However, with a small telescope, it's seen to be made up of two stars showing a beautiful colour contrast. The brighter third magnitude component, which actually is itself a double star, is amber in colour, whilst the 5.1 magnitude companion is blue-green, making a wonderful contrast. Their separation is 35 arc seconds, so they can easily be split, even under very poor seeing conditions. During the first two weeks of August, Saturn, Mars and Spica, Alpha Virginis, are in close formation, low above the western horizon. On the 7th, they make up a very nice triangle, whilst on the 13th and 14th, they'll lie almost in a straight line, with Saturn topmost and then Mars lying between Saturn and Spica. You may well need binoculars, because the night sky will still be fairly bright. On the 14th of August, we can see Venus very close to western elongation, as I mentioned, along with a thin, waning crescent moon. That should be quite nice to see if it's clear. And then on the 14th, there's a nice line of planets. Mercury has appeared above the horizon, and then you have Venus and Jupiter. Joining them between Mercury and Venus will lie a very thin, waning crescent moon. That should be a very nice skyscape to observe. August is the best month to observe the planet Neptune. It's closest to the Earth on the 24th of August. The probably best time to look for it is around the 17th, around New Moon, when the skies are darkest. On the night sky, just put in night sky Jodrell Bank into Google, on that website I've given two star charts, an overall one, to show its general location within the constellation of Aquarius, and also a more detailed one to try and help you find it. At magnitude 7.8, you should spot it with binoculars, and a telescope might even show it has a little bluish disk, which is just 2.4 arc seconds across. I must say, finding things like Neptune is when a go-to telescope mount is quite useful. Finally, on August the 31st, we have what is often called a blue moon. It is the second full moon in August. It's not totally obvious why it's called that. One thought is that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the main farmer's almanac listed the third full moon in a group of four in a season as a blue moon. And it may have been highlighted in the almanac with the colour blue. For example, in the three-month summer season, the first full moon is called the early summer moon, the second the midsummer moon, and the third the late summer moon. So if, as this year, there's a final fourth full moon, so that the final full moon could still be called the late summer moon, if there were four, the third one was called a blue moon. Now, the term was used in the radio program Stardate on Jan the 31st, 1980, as the second full moon in a month, and that tends to be what we now use the term for. So there's quite a lot to look out for in August, and let's just hope we have more clear skies than we seem to have had in the last few months. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere's night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the August John Carter from Carter Observatory. August sees the Milky Way stretching east to west across our evening sky. Along this path, we find the majority of the bright stars in our sky. 
Scorpius cracks and the pointers are high in our evening sky and can be easily found along the path of the Milky Way. Looking north or south away, the brightness and number of stars rapidly drops off. Clustered around the south celestial pole, we find a number of celestial birds. Although consisting of faint stars, these constellations contain a number of interesting targets. Parvo the Peacock was introduced in 1603 by the German celestial cartographer Johann Bayer. Its only conspicuous star is Alpha Pavonis, which sits along the northern edge of this constellation. Delta Pavonis is a nearby sunlight star. At 20 light years away, this star is believed to be older than our sun and may be about to turn into a red giant star. With its sun-like properties, it has been the target of both SETI and planet hunters. To date, there is no evidence of any planets orbiting this star. Not only does this faint constellation host a sun-like star, it also hosts a Milky Way-like galaxy. Called NGC 6744, this galaxy contains a barred centre and loose spiral arms, features similar to our own galaxy. It is about 30 million light-years away, and it shines at ninth magnitude, so using a small telescope and a star chart, you should reveal it as a haze in the sky. Progressively larger telescopes reveal more detail, including the spiral arms. Perhaps the jewel in Parvo is the globular cluster NGC 6752. Shining at magnitude 5.4, it may be visible to the unaided eye from a dark sky location. It makes a lovely sight in binoculars or a telescope. You may see curved and looped lines of stars. Current estimates place it distant at 13,000 light years away, and is the third brightest globular cluster in our night sky. Following a line from the pointers towards the south celestial pole, and about two-thirds of the way along this line, we find the faint constellation of Apis, representing the bird of paradise. The brightest star in this constellation is a magnitude 3.8 orange star, estimated to be 400 light years away. Delta Apis at magnitude 4.6 is an interesting double star. This star appears as a pair of red and orange stars when viewed in binoculars. The problem is that the brighter red star has been given a distance of 770 light years away, whilst the fainter orange star is thought to be only 663 light years away. They both share a similar motion and velocity through space, so some type of connection is possible. There is a faint magnitude 9 globular cluster in this constellation called NGC 6101. A 20cm or greater telescope and a star chart will be needed to observe it. Our next bird sits a little further away from the south celestial pole and is not far from Parvo. This is Tucana the Toucan and has a number of objects for us to enjoy. Alpha Tucane is a magnitude 2.8 star, about 200 light years away. It is a spectroscopic binary with an orbital period of about 11.5 years. Beta Tucane is a loose group of six gravitationally bound stars approximately 140 light years away. The two exceptional objects in Tucan are the small Magellanic Cloud and 47 Tucano, the second brightest globular cluster in our sky. The SMC is visible to the unaided eye as a cloudy smudge in the sky. It is a dwarf galaxy of several hundred million stars, about 200,000 light years away. With any size telescope or good binoculars, a number of star clusters can be seen in and around the SMC. Sitting beside the SMC, but actually a foreground object, is 47 Tucano. Appearing as a fuzzy star to the unaided eye, it is in fact a globular cluster of millions of stars. This cluster is a stunning sight in binoculars or telescopes. During early August, Mars, the red planet, and Saturn will move closer together. From the 13th to the 17th, Mars will pass between Saturn and Spica, reaching their closest on the 15th. After this state, they will slowly move apart. Although these planets may look visually close together, they are in fact separated by many millions of kilometres. 
A small telescope should easily reveal the rings and Saturn's largest moon Titan, and possibly one or more other moons. Mars, on the other hand, will reveal very little detail on its tiny disk. However, NASA's latest mission to Mars, the Curiosity rover, is currently on the way and will arrive at Mars on the 6th of August, and this mission will send back some stunning images of the red planet. Jupiter, the other gas giant, is in our morning sky with the brilliant Venus nearby. Not far from Jupiter is the asteroid Vesta. Vesta will be close to Aldebaran, the brightest star in Taurus, on the 6th of August, and it will appear as an 8th magnitude star. Also nearby is dwarf planet Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt. Binoculars in a star chart will be useful to find this asteroid Vesta and dwarf planet Ceres. Towards the end of August, NASA's Dawn spacecraft will leave its orbit around Vesta and make its way towards Ceres. This will be our first chance to image a dwarf planet. It will arrive there in February 2015, five months before NASA's New Horizons spacecraft reaches the dwarf planet Pluto. Mercury is too close to the Sun to be easily seen and will become an evening sky object later this year. Many thanks for listening in to our Jodcast and the team here at Carter Observatory wishes you clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. First off, we've had no post, but we're going to assign that to the fact that you guys are all on holiday. So if you're listening to us on a beach somewhere sunny, just just wander off the beach, go to the souvenir shop, pick up a postcard and, and maybe send us it. The address is on the, the website. We do really like post. We do really like we post. Everyone happy. gets very excited. <laughs> we also enjoy decorating the Jodcast studio with your postcards. We've had a message from Divide by Zero on our forum. It just says, thanks for the kind hosts and for their great shows. Jod on. And I'm sure that we all will keep jodding on. And on Twitter, we had a tweet from Red Tweet Down. And he said, the Jodcast theme makes me unexpectedly happy. Yay. Thank you for that. And thanks for all the retweets and the following Fridays, everyone. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, as I said, you can send us normal conventional post and the address is on the website. So all that remains is to uh, thank Dr. Fergus Simpson and Professor Carlos Frank for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Menely Shond and Liz Guzman. The producer was Mark Perver. So until next time, jot on. on. Bye. Bye. Bye.